Thanks, Aaron. Hey, everybody. <clears throat> okay. <clears throat> uh, I remember in undergrad, I was reading a political um, philosophy textbook. And it said in one of the first pages, assumed in every political philosophy, and you could say every philosophy, is an anthropology that is like the belief of what a human being is, right? Any, anything where the things in the philosophy you have are human beings moving around and interacting with each other, you have to start with an assumption about what human beings are, right? That's true of political philosophy. It's also true of every religious faith that's ever existed. It's true of like how you choose to run your week, Right? You might think that's like overly academic. It's not really. Like, what you, how you choose to live your life, everything that you choose to do assumes a whole set of assumptions you may or may not be aware of, of what you are as a human being. In fact, one of the things that makes present life difficult is we have multiple philosophies in the public space that have very little agreement on what a human being is. It's no wonder they can't talk to each other. You know? I read uh, some research recently about research that was done in terms of social and human beliefs in a group of people that were labeled progressive Christians and a group of people labeled conservative Christians. And the sociologist that did the study said that these two groups need to be classified as different religions because they completely disagree on the, like, what a human being is, what human flourishing looks like, how human beings are formed, how human beings are transformed, how, on, by what basis they come together, what is a, politi- like a, a political arrangement. All of these, the assumptions are so fundamentally different the beliefs about God are so fundamentally different, and the remedies for human problems are so fundamentally different that their languages can't even talk to each other, much less agree on anything, which is a little scary. But that's what the data suggested, he said. One of the things that we desperately need as Christians— so there, was a, there was a while when I was in seminary, one of my professors said one time, he said, listen, it used to be difficult, like if you went to university campus or you preached somewhere where non-Christians were going to be there— to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, because people had been sort of primed with arguments against the resurrection of Jesus, right? They're not very good ones, but that's what they knew. And so you'd have to be prepared for those, right? And he said, and then there was this transition where the focus was on sin, right? With gestalt psychology and stuff like that. Like, I don't have to live up to your standards. What's sin anyway, right? And so the hardest thing to do was to substantiate what's sin? Like, what's the problem? And then we can talk about the solution, which is Jesus. And by that point, nobody knew anything about the resurrection anymore. Nobody could even ask good questions. It was all focused on, like, why should I believe in your idea of sin, right? And then it changed again to, well, what is even a human being that could sin for which you'd need a Savior who would be raised from the dead? You see, like, where we are now is we're, like, four steps back from Jesus to, like, what is a human being? And this is important when we try to reckon with the question of what does it look like as human beings together to wait for God's promises to be fully fulfilled in the return of Jesus, having experienced the first coming of Jesus and him giving us, in a sense, the first fruits of that promise, accomplishing the work of salvation in terms of offering us forgiveness and reconciliation with God and each other, and yet waiting in final reconciliation until grace is offered to all humanity. Does that make sense? It's a difficult place to be waiting. And you've got to know what you are and what we are together when we do that waiting, or we're not going to know how to do it, right? Um, Human beings 
are creatures that if you just observe us in religious context or non-religious context, in all kinds of different cultural expressions, what you find everywhere is, at, is these, more than these three things. I'm saying these three things because this is what I'm going to talk about relative to the passage. But you see, you see that human beings everywhere are social creatures. Even when we like mediate our socialness through technology, we still use what kind of medias? Social ones. Now, we don't want to actually let other people engage with us the way they want to. We want to profoundly control their access to us. Like the great thing about texting your mom is you don't have to text her back, you know? And so like social medias allow us to have an enormous amount of control over other people's access to us so we can try to get the benefits of being social with other people, which we desperately need as human beings, but we still can control them so they don't get what they want if we don't like it, right? It's making social one way, which we'll have to save that for another time, right? But we are social. Secondly is, we, as human beings, we tend to come together and venerate shared ideals or idols. That is that there's some embodiment of what, like, what we should all be together. Because how do I know if I can trust you? Right? Like, how do, like we want to be like sentimental, be like, well, you can trust everybody. Everybody's a good person. Sweetie, did you lock the door? You know? Like you, what everybody experiences pretty early in their life is you can't actually trust everybody because people betray your trust and hurt you. So then the question is, well, who are the people that hurt me and who are the people that don't hurt me, at least usually? And this person is my—these people are my tribe, and these people are not my tribe, right? What, what, that whole differentiation is these are the trustworthy people and these aren't. And why are the trustworthy people trustworthy? It's because they share certain ideals with me about how we should treat each other, and they actually live according to them. And so people tend to gather in groups to venerate certain ideals, right? Look on the social media at what the people talk about, and it's often— putting forward their ideals and how the other ideals stick, right? And how theirs are right and fully omniscient and 16 are enough, you know, or four, right? And then the, the third is that we're attracted to beauty and creativity, right? Like, who are the, who are the influencers? Are they the most intellectually erudite, well-read, well-thought-through, not emotional but personally caring human beings that are embedded in practitionally doing the things that they say that they care about? Like when we talk about poverty, do we look to people who've spent like 40 years in inner city communities that are actually now doing better 25 years later after they started working there? We go, hey, what did you learn? Is that, is that who has 24 million or 100 million Twitter followers? Or is this somebody who writes vague poems to music and yells them in tight women's clothing. I was thinking of Bono, but I guess like there's a lot of more modern ones than that, right? They have no idea what they're talking about. But we're, well, here's the thing. Human beings have always been attracted to beauty or things that aren't necessarily like profound human substance. Right? Like, People literally listen to folks like, like new senators, like, um, like who's the new guy from Ohio that wrote Hillbilly Elegy? J.D. Vance, right? He's a good guy to listen to. Younger guy, though, right? Not a senator, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. She's a young person. She was the bartender, you know? We should listen, right? But like John Woodson, this like 85-year-old black man who's literally served in inner cities and the places he served have literally gotten better including him using as leaders ex-convict gang members 
most of whom are Christianly converted and living in families in their community. Do you know how many Twitter followers he has? Less. <laughs> and it's, that's partly an issue of just vanity and things like that, but it's partly an issue of like, we listen not to who we, in a, in a careful way, think is most qualified, but we listen to who we're attracted to, who we're drawn to, right? Let me get a little personal with you for a second here. Why do you come to this church? Is this pulpit the place where the best spiritual food in Madison comes forth? Where the best pastoral oversight comes forth? Where the music most devoted to direct attention to God comes forth? Or am I funnier than the other guy? Right? I mean, it's not like it stops at that door. Right? Now, relative to that, one of the things we need to recognize as we look at the story of Mary and Elizabeth and Simeon and Anna and Zechariah is that shared worship— Shared worship among believing people incredibly empowers faithful waiting. Incredibly empowers it. It's way more important than you think it is. And you'll be like, Nick, I buy a church for you. No, it's more important than you think it is. I don't care how important you think it is. It's more important than that. Right? And for a lot of us, a lot more. Now, I just want to be really clear about what I mean. What I mean empower, what I mean when I say that is not just divinely empowering, that the Holy Spirit is with us. I do believe that. I believe that when we're together in Christ's name, the Holy Spirit is with us, empowering faithful waiting. However, I also believe that God has structured us and structured corporate worship so that the two would synergistically work together in what we are as human beings, social, engaged towards ideals, and drawn to beauty— such that it would empower us in our faithful waiting. It inspires us, and it changes us, it helps us, right? And secondly, when I say faithful waiting, I don't just mean persevering, that we don't stop waiting and leave. I also mean that we know what we're doing while we're waiting, that is, that we're, they're living in faith fruitfully, because we're not just waiting. We're, we're working waiting. Does that make sense? It's like dinner's coming at five, and we can't wait because our stomach's already growling, but like, this stuff has to get hoed and dug and weed and all the kind of stuff that needs to be done. Does that make sense? That's the kind of waiting. We're not just sitting around. Okay. So there's three parts of this that we're going to go over. Together, worship, art. First, together. It is fundamental that we are together. That's not ancillary. It's fundamental. If you look at all these contexts that— you see in Luke chapters 1 and 2, where there are songs, where there is like a moment where the Holy Spirit inspires a work of art or poetic worship that usually is in the form of a song, and it comes forward and says the Holy Spirit is there. People are always together, and usually together with the express intent of seeking God. Mary goes to Elizabeth to seek what God is doing with Elizabeth and herself, and there she experiences something happens with the Holy Spirit— Elizabeth says something inspired that is beautiful and poetic and remembered for some 60 years until Luke writes it down. And then Mary sings the Magnificat. She's, she says this beautiful song that has inspired people for a couple thousand years, right? And then it's the time for John the Baptist's circumcision. Eight days after he's born, this little baby's here. The whole family's there in his house. The, the, like the moil, like rabbi is there. And it's a really celebratory experience. Zachariah still can't speak right? And Elizabeth's like, no, it's not going to be Zechariah. It's, jo it's John. And then this moment happens where the Holy Spirit opens Zechariah's mouth. He begins to speak. He actually empowers him to prophesy in the form of this poetic song, and Zechariah's song comes forth. So memorable, so unforgettable, 
that either somebody wrote it down then and somebody still had it 60 years later when Luke was compiling his gospel, right? An old guy, I mean, as old as dirt, in the temple, praying, the Holy Spirit revealed to him he would see the, the Christ child before he died. And he's in the temple, he's praying, and the Holy Spirit moves him right then to go to a specific thing and like sort of points out Jesus. And he picks up and gets to hold Jesus. And he turns to Mary and Joseph, he tells them what is true about Jesus in this sort of almost song, like, Lord, you can release me, right? And in, in every one of those situations, people come together, and they have come together particularly to seek God. And in that place of corporate worship, they're together, God acts. And in each one of those cases, one thing that's interesting is it, it talks about the Holy Spirit being there. I'll get to that a little bit more at the end. But you can see this together context. It's, it's also true that like this is kind of normative. Like you get to the New Testament and Jesus just straightforward teaches this. You got to be together. I'm intending to work with you when you're together. So in Matthew 18, it says this. Again, I tell you that if, if two of you on earth agree about anything and ask for it, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there I am with them. Now, there's a couple verses on binding and loosing above that. There's some controversy whether this is just corporate prayer, whether it includes church discipline, a bunch of things like that. But what is important to recognize is whatever is being done here that is divinely powerful is being done when two or three or more people come together and pray. That is, they come together to seek God, particularly in prayer, right? In Hebrews 10, 25, it says this, let us hold unswervingly, that's, remember, faithful waiting includes persevering, waiting, right? Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds. That is, faithful waiting is persevering, and what else? It's fruitful. It's doing love and good deeds while it's waiting, right? So how do we do this? He says, so let us not give up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. So he's saying, until the return of Jesus, all the more we need to get together and encourage one another, because it's not easy to do this together, and the best way to do it is human beings feed off of each other in really profound ways. And so you literally get physically together, and you encourage one another to be spurred on to persevere and to live fruitfully, because Jesus will return for us, and we should do it together, literally in each other's presence. And we should do it more as time passes, not less. Right? You can see this in 1 Corinthians in a negative context. There's this guy who's a believer. He's been baptized. He's living with his stepmother, probably. And the church is like, we're so tolerant. Like, we just love them, everybody. And Paul's like, that's not okay. Like, literally, when you have sexual immorality that the pagans don't even do, you know you're a little off. Okay? And so he's, he, he says this. He says, when you are assembled, meaning you come together for worship, right? He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present. That is, the Holy Spirit is personally present with you when you gather in this group together, right? He says, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature or the flesh may be destroyed by his, in, by his, in his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Meaning, when you come together and you're in this context seeking the Lord together, you have, to, you have to send this person out of the church. You cannot witness together that he belongs to Jesus in this state of faith. Because by his actions, he's openly rejected discipleship in Jesus the Christ. So by just tolerating it, what you're doing is you're being complicit with his self-deception, which includes his self-damnation. You can't do that as the local church. When you come together and you do it to worship, you have to be honest with yourself and each other. 
And the church together, and the elders in particular, have to be courageous enough to tell this person he can't do this and be a member of the local church where we affirm the likelihood of your assurance of salvation. Right? Instead, we need to convey to you that how you are acting contradicts your claim to believe in Jesus and therefore should undermine your feelings of, of assurance. And so you got to go so that your addiction to fulfilling the flesh while saying you want to walk in the Spirit will find the conflict of life external to the body of Christ. So that hopefully you can recognize what that's like. That is, the flesh can be destroyed by Satan because Satan's going to tear him apart. And ultimately, hopefully he'll realize it and be re-added back into the church. You get to 2 Corinthians, and Paul is very, very kind and very adamant about with what grace such a person should be received back once they do realize it. To be brought together to the body of Christ and together to affirm that person's assurance and repentance, which we're going to do in just a minute in baptism, right? What is baptism? But the church's shared together initiatory right to a person to say that your faith in Christ is real and we affirm that you seem to be credibly regenerate and therefore should take baptism, the symbol that you belong to the body of Christ, so that we can together worship God and be incredibly empowered in faithful waiting. Does that make sense? Um, one of the things to notice is that most of the New Testament spiritual disciplines that we talk about that are emphasized are either corporate in nature or are emphasized as being done corporately together, even fasting and prayer. So if you look at yourself, like, well, what is the New—because sometimes, as, like, as a historically evangelical church, one of the things that we often say is, like, what is the spiritual life? How do you, like, follow Jesus? And historically, within evangelical churches and um, campus groups like, like Crew or Navigators or InterVarsity or Ratio Christi, people like that, the answer is what? Read your Bible and pray. And if you're very spiritual, journal. <laughs> right? And if you're Navigators, memorize Scripture. Right? That's the spiritual life. Do you need anybody for any of those four things? You do not. You can do all those things all by yourself. You don't have to go to church. You don't have to be part of a church. You don't have to care about a church. Those are all—you can do all four of those all by yourself. Now, are all four of those very, very good spiritual disciplines for our spiritual lives? Yes, they are. Very good. And can you ground all four of those in the Scriptures themselves? Yes, you can. Right? Did first-century Christians read the Bible privately? Almost none of them. Why? Because the vast majority were illiterate, right? Uh, to buy a copy of the Bible was thousands of dollars that people didn't have. And the biblical documents were written to be read out loud. I, I noticed um, when I was looking at something this week that, that the young adult ministry sometimes has gatherings where they get together and they read a book of the Bible out loud. To, just together. That's what they do. That's all gathering. Well, they probably do more than that. But, um, but that's, that's really good, right? Because that—the Bible's actually written to be read out loud to others so that others can hear it. Does that make sense? That's why when people say, oh, I listen to the Bible. I know I'm not reading. I'm not a good reader. I'm such a bad Christian. I'm like, well, you probably are a bad Christian, but not for that. <laughs> right? We're all bad Christians. If you like, if you want to hold us up to the ruler Jesus, we're all terrible Christians, right? But like, but, but the thing is, is like, no, you, like, you li if you listen to the Bible, that's actually in some ways more like the original way people interacted with Scripture, right? Is it good to pray by yourself? Absolutely. But you see, like, if you look in, in, in the Bible and you look at prayer in the Bible— you don't find hardly any personal prayer. There's a little bit here and there. Little bits. There's this place in Matthew where Jesus says, hey, if you pray, go into your closet, close the door, 
right? Meaning, don't be showy about it. That is, don't pray around people in what? And not with them. See the point? If you're praying by yourself, then be by yourself. Don't be showy about praying. Same thing with fasting, right? You just go put oil on your face. Don't let people know you're fasting, right? That is, if you're fasting and not with people, then do it by yourself. But if you go to the book of Acts in chapter 4, they're all praying and fasting together. And it's not like they're disobeying Jesus. Because actually those disciplines, even the discipline of fasting, people did with each other. They said, we're all going to fast on Friday, right? In the Methodist movement, it was three days a week. John Wesley wrote in his journals about prayer, private prayer. He said, private prayer, comma, which is unbiblical, comma, and then he read, wrote some more about it. Now, that, he didn't literally mean you couldn't pray by yourself. He wrote in his journals about times he prayed by himself. What he meant was is that the, this idea that prayer is this thing you do by yourself is an additional concept to the main biblical teaching about prayer, which is that you always do it together. Right? One of the reasons why there's people awkwardly standing up here by themselves at the end of the church service, the prayer team, is because those are people committed to this idea that, like, you literally are supposed to pray with other people. And so they make themselves available to literally do that. Like, maybe somebody would actually want to do that. Now, listen, you might be like, well, I pray in my small group, and I pray them. Great. Great. But it's, it does seem weird, right? When I, week after week, I'm like, yeah, make yourself available, because people are going to want to pray with you, because this is a fundamental spiritual discipline, to pray with other people. Right? And part of the reason that's so great is because when God does things— People experience it together, and they remember it together. Right? Like, I remember—I don't know if some of the people I've prayed for to be healed, when they were healed, there's just very few people do not come to me for healing, okay? I'll pray for you, but I'm an elder. I have to. But like, I, I'm, I'm just like, don't think I have high hands or something, okay? It's not a gift. But like, if, I, if, if some of those people would have just prayed for their own kids or something, and they, those kids would have got healed, and I did, I would never, I don't remember. But I, listen, I remember, because like I've had people say, well, you pray in this situation. In that particular situation, one out of maybe a hundred, that person gets healed really by God. It's really amazing. And I remember that. There's two or three of those in my minute. And like in 20 years, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was amazing. I also remember times, sometimes, where I shared love with people praying for healing or other things in their life where it didn't work. Like, I still remember being in a room with five children, the five children of this man who was dying of spinal cancer, and praying for them. And that God would provide for them and for their future and heal their dad, but that he would be with them no matter what happened. And I walked with that family through his death and then her sudden death a couple years later and then the court battle that surrounded it and how I had to be part of that. And to now where they're like grown-ups and they've gone to college and they've become adults and because I prayed with them. Because you get drawn in prayer into the most vital moments of intimate parts of people's lives. And that's—you that, see, God isn't just using these disciplines divinely. He does use them divinely. The Holy Spirit is literally there. But he also creates them humanely. That is, he orders them to the human beings that he made in his image so that by interacting with the thing itself, it brings something out in us that's profound. And so when we don't do them, it doesn't happen. We're such magicians. We think that like, well, if God is there and I believe in him, I just like wave around my spiritual magic finger and God will do everything relative to godliness or blessing that the Bible talks about, but I will do none of the humane and human things he told me to do. It is amazing how like more than half of people who profess Christian faith just have no idea that being part of a gathered human local church is fundamental to the Christian faith. More fundamental than praying. You'll pray here. So just do this, you'll get that one done too. 
But it's, it's just like, I, it's like you believing you can do one thing without the other. It's this fundamental American consumeristic idea that we can a la carte our way through life. And in all the most important things, you can't. Love, marriage, raising children, loving God, eating. Like, like literally none of the most important things can you do whatever you want. Or I would literally drink eggnog for two months starting in mid-September <laughs> as my diet. All right, let's move on. So th therefore, we're still on the first point, you guys, um, is that for our humanity, who is one of the most critical questions you ever like? Who are you with? Because we feed off of each other. We grow like each other. We constantly are getting feedback from each other through all of our external five senses and internal four senses. And like there's, and all those are working together in ways we can't even possibly understand. And so one of the most fundamental questions of your life is who? That's why young people, your parents care who your, your friends are. They should. It's the most important thing they can do as a parent is what do you pay attention to and who are your friends? Who do you spend time with? That's it. That's all that matters. They don't even have to love you. I'm just kidding. They do have to love you. But like, that's how they have to love you, right? And then the second is that we should be, affect we should be affected by others. This idea that like, well, I'm just my own person. I'm not, that's not, that's misspelled terribly. Um, but I'm not like, I'm not impacted by other people. I'm just my own independent self. That is baloney, okay? You are independent in the sense that you have some ability to choose who you put yourself around. You get to decide who brainwashes you, okay? So in that sense, yes, you have volition. But the idea that you like walk through the earth unaffected by anything around you is just not true. It's never been true. It's not true about anybody. And that, that's a, that is a fundamentally pagan, not a Christian idea. The idea that you, we can live like in this like internal floating mind, completely rational and objective above all feeling and connection of sensual nature with other people and just be ourselves in the midst of the world around us no matter what happens is not true. Jesus cried and asked God if he could get out of the crucifixion in his humanity in the garden, and that was not a sin. He was totally emotionally connected to his life and everybody in it, and it hurt his feelings when his disciples couldn't pray for an hour, even though they'd had like five glasses of wine and a bunch of meat for the Passover meal. He's like, he's emotionally hurt by it. That didn't make him less of a human being. It made him a full human being. And he was a affected by it, and he wanted them there to positively affect them. In the moment where he needed their positive shared effect on him as a human being, they did the opposite, and it really hurt his feelings. And so did their betrayals and their denials. They were part of his torture. Because even Jesus, the perfect human being who is the God-man and the Christ, was a fully humane creature— and interacted humanely with all the dynamics around him, including the vital reality of being together. If you're an introvert, just it's a smaller group. It's not nobody, right? It doesn't mean you can mediate people through your phone, and that's fine. All right. I don't have time for the philosophy of the integral senses. All right. And especially if you're in a group culturally who's a minority, okay? Now, I understand that politically— if you are of any kind of Caucasian background and you think of yourself as a minority, that is just a demonstration of white privilege. And maybe politically and economically in some way that's true, okay? That's not how I'm talking about it right now. I'm talking about our human formation. If you are, and I, if your identity is in a group that is not the majority, that is, that controls the culture, it's art and artifacts and ideals, then you need a sub-formational tribe that you are integrally connected to to be formed in that way. 
That is, if you are a Christian, no matter what your ethnicity, background, age, culture, or language, if you are in the United States and you are a Christian— now, this may not be true in Kenya. In Kenya, where 85% of the population is professing Christians, they have, like, Christian Bible reading in schools. Maybe that's not true. But here it's true. And especially if you're in places that are extreme in their secularity, like the campus. There's wonderful things about the campus, and things to learn, and things to research. But one of the things that is not true about the campus is that your togetherness with others, and your movement towards ideals, and your expression of receiving art, and your personal formation is going to lead you to be holy in Christ. You actually need a sub-tribe that you are integrally connected with that is forming itself together in the image of Christ. Which is why, if you're a college student, or you're going to be a college student, you need to participate in on-campus ministries, I think. I think it's very, very important. Not just for there to be a witness of the gospel, not just so you can receive teaching, not just so you can study the Bible together, but so that you can engage in the humane nature of how human beings interactively grow and shape each other. And in some ways, it is just who you're with and for how much time and doing what. And I don't know that there's another way for most of us. Okay, we need to keep moving. I say this about technologies first. Therefore, and I don't have time to argue for this, there is no virtual tool that can create a sufficient interface to convey the interactive purpose we get from each other in personal contact. I'm sorry if this feels like a personal attack if you're watching online. (laughs) The way Aquinas talked about this, he says we have five senses, right? Sight, hearing, smell, taste, and touch, right? That's about right? Okay. In my ESP, you know? And then he said we have four internal senses. That is, the common sense is the capacity to interpret the five senses into our neurology, right? Memory, that is our connection in our sensation to the past and how it correlates to the future, right? Our imagination, our ability to take the sensational things that come in and remodel them imaginatively into possibility and to function within those possibilities. And third, the cogitative ability, which is the ability to think about things. These are mostly intellectually passive. He has two other internal intellects that we will get into now. These five senses and these four internal senses of the passive intellect are fundamentally interacting with each other. So multiply nine factorially, and you will get some idea of how much is working on inside of you passively. That is, you don't have cognitive control over it. You can't decide what it does. It just happens. That extraordinarily complicated function of human growth and development is happening in the social context through the senses and only works properly in immediate contact with other human beings. There is no technology that can mediate it. This is one of the reasons why, especially with younger people, as they've mediated themselves through technologies, especially over the last two years of COVID, almost every cognitive and social and psychological dysfunction related to being together has more than doubled which is a catastrophe and a social nightmare. Whether addictions or loneliness or depression or suicidality, it's all doubled for younger people. And younger people are the most disproportionately likely to think that mediated technology togetherness is pretty much the same as literally being together with other people you develop immediate affection for. It is not. That is an inhuman view of your humanity. 
It is built on the idea that you are a consumerist creature and you are a robotic creature. You're just neurons firing after all, and then you can shape that however you want to. That is not true. Even if you're an atheist, you still could look at yourself as a creature, discover your nature that you can't choose, and then learn how to live in accordance with it for your good. If you're a believer, God just tells you, and you could just do it. Okay, let's see if we can get another point in in the last four minutes. The second is it's worship, right? So they come together to rehearse and explore together an ideal, right? If you look at what Mary says, it's a divine act, but it's also an intensely personal act. But it's not just intensely personal. It's intensely personal and universal. So if you look at what Mary does, right, she— turns to God, and she says, the first two verses of the, of the Magnificat are about her. God has seen the humble state of his sermon. God has done great things for me. From this day forward, every, every group of people on the hit face are going to call me blessed. There's something unique has happened to me. And then, boom, it turns to it's about everybody. Because the reason why she's special is the same reason everybody can turn to God, who will treat them specially in salvation, Right? So she says, listen, the reason is because he looks to the humble. And she, he's like, basically, she's like, basically, I was like the poster child for like nothing, for the humble. Like, I, like and that's, that's why he picked me. And so what that means is, is that if like, you're among the humble, like nobody cares about you. Nobody thinks you're the smartest thing that's ever lived. Nobody thinks you're going to amount to much. Nobody thinks that you're important. Nobody wants to listen to you. Like, it's great, you guys. You're like me. I'm the one God picked. And he tears down the proud. And he fills the, the hungry with good things, and he makes the rich go hungry sometimes in certain ways. And it's really amazing the way he cares about us. You see, you see her act of worship is focused on God. It's focused on God's truths. It's focused on what's true about him. It is intensely personal and contextual to herself. And it's fundamentally humanly universal at the same time. So therefore, she can personally worship God in a way that's really deeply personal to her. And we can participate in it too. So it's together— and it's worship. Do you understand? And then when those two come together, there's a multiplier effect. You understand? I just did that. That was fantastic. Therefore, worship pays direct attention to God. It attends to God directly, right? It rehearses his truth and his goodness. It, um, it does so through his promises and acts, right? So you, you talk about God abstractly, but also like what he's done. And sometimes it's what he's done in the Bible and through Jesus Christ. And sometimes it's literally what he's done for you, where something has happened in your life and you interpret it, you think reasonably, as God's intervention or God's work. Whether it's his humane work, that is, as you, you've done what he said, you can see how it's had good effect. And you still attribute that to God, because that's still part of God's sovereign work in your life. But sometimes it's a direct act of the Holy Spirit and his intervention, like a healing or something like that. Either way, those direct actions can be attributed to God. Each person that'll get baptized in just a little bit here, right? They'll, they'll be like, God found me. And sometimes they'll just be like, God found me in that he, Jesus died for my sins. He put the Bible in the world and like I interacted with other Christians and then like that led me to him. I, I can't tell you what the Holy Spirit did. I know what he was involved because I've read the Bible, but that's all I know. And other people will say the Holy Spirit did X, Y, Z. And I think it was God's direct intervention that then like broke the back of my resistance and drew me to him. For each person, it's a present. And here's the thing about that. Every one of their stories, if they told it in its more full completeness, would be intensely personal and particular to them. And what also? It would have the same shape as all of ours if we come to Christ. We were not with, his, with him. We were resistant. We were blameworthy. 
only God's mercy drew him to us. He somehow contrived a way to get our attention through which he drew us to himself. He led us through the convictional work of like us being like, crap, I can't do this without him, and I, I shouldn't try, and he, I do deserve his wrath. And we come to repentance and faith, and then God leads us into a future and a community. Like, that, that's universal. And so each person can say, that's why Christians for thousands of years now have shared their testimonies, right? Why? So we can like worship the one person having experience by themselves that none of us can be part of? No, because their intensely contextualized personal experience is also universal in the saving work of God. We're all the same and all completely different. And you see, do you see how that's also the dynamic of political diversity? Right? Like, that, like knowing the shared humane ideal of how we're all the same and allowing people to have some difference and seeing naturally and intuitively and emotionally how those work together allows us to love people different from ourselves as the same as ourselves while different from ourselves. And to root it in emotionality and love so as to counteract the natural hatred and distrust when I wonder if you're in my tribe. God gives us these principles so that we can at least live them out in the church. Okay, technically, I can go till 10 o'clock and not ruin everything, so I'm going to try really quick on the art one. So we don't have to do a whole other sermon on art, which some of you might not enjoy, okay? So that is, the third thing is, is we use art. Human beings are creative creatures who respond to creativity. Now, it is true that more than 90 people, 90% of people, do not do anything directly creative. In the sense that, if you say, what, what do creative people make? Songs, poems, they write stories, they write books. And if you ask people, have you ever done these? The answer for most people, more than 90% of people, is no to all of them. They'd be like, well, I doodled this boy. I had a crush on his name in my notebook when I was in sixth grade. And you're like, that doesn't really count. Right? But even people who aren't naturally creative respond to creativity. And in the Bible, work is considered creativity. That is, it is creational. We make things. So there is craftsmanship creativity. If we do something, make something, give ourselves to making something that didn't exist before, i.e. work, or we, um, we create something out of the dictates of our moved imagination, something that doesn't exist and still doesn't exist, but represents to our imagination something that could exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. So, this emphasis on art is something that we don't often see, but is a string, string ring all through the Bible. And, like, if you come here and you're like, look, Nick, I, I like Jesus. I don't hate you. I don't get the sing-along stuff, man. I just don't, like, I don't get the, we come and we sing for, like, I don't know why, why we do that. First of all, A, you might be right. There are more mechanisms of worshiping together with art than singing songs, Okay? So one, the fact that we sing songs, that's mostly how we express artistic worship together, and you don't like that, that maybe you're right. That's possible, okay? That's, our, that's really a tradition that we have in this church, right? But it's also the substantiation of it. Together, we're attending to God directly in the artistically humane nature that we can as image bearers of God, right? We are meant to use our imagination and creativity in our interacting with God together towards Him as the ideal. And when you start thinking about that, you start thinking all through the Bible. The first people who received the Holy Spirit in the Bible were artists. I don't know if you know that. But the first people God said, I'm going to put my spear on them, were two metal artists who were going to make something for the worship of God. 
if you look at on the history of the Bible, we often skip over the songs. Like how many people, when you see a song in the Bible, you just skip to the end of it and start reading again? Okay? One of the things that annoys people about reading The Lord of the Rings is there's just songs in it everywhere. Like people just sing songs. And you're like, who is this guy? And why did he write songs? It's because he was read saturated in the Bible. If you work through the Bible, at, when big events happen, people sing. People like use tambourines and stuff, and they shake them around and stuff like that. And you see this both in terms of songs like Moses and Miriam and Deborah and David and Mary and the songs in Revelation. You also see this in like the building of the cherubim and fruit and animals being built on things. There were two pillars at least in the original temple that bore no weight whatsoever. They were just there for show and they had, they had um, decorative chains with like metal or like bronze pomegranates that had been shaped. The, the original big bath thing that you'd wash on your way to the temple had 12 huge metal oxen that were cast metal so that when you went into the temple of God, it did not look like this. It did not, you didn't walk in, you're like, oh, look at the drywall. It just inspires me. <laughs> you know, like for years, I've, I've, I've probably gone to the elders five times. This is not their fault. We have a lot going on. But I'm like, you guys, we need to art this place the heck up. We need to have a, a, a hall of martyrs out there where like some of the great Christians of history, like we have beautiful portraits of them and like descriptions about how they live. We need to put like, we should have like, I don't care if we have Christian graffiti in here, but this place has got to change, right? It also means that like the carpet matters. We're going to change all the carpet. It matters. Listen, God was specific about like he wanted drapes in the temple. Like of like expensive material. Like some of it had to be purple. That's like the most expensive material you could get. Red is the second most expensive, Right? And he, he cared about that. It doesn't mean we should split the church over it, okay? It just means that the people who are going to do that work are doing work that matters, right? And all of that matters so that we can, as people, come together, direct ourselves to the ideal that, that is God, his truth, his actions, rehearse them together among ourselves, feed off of each other in all good, humane ways, and do so using our God-given capacity for beauty, for the pursuit of beauty with the imagination and its instantiation through art. And one of the things uh, evangelical believers have traditionally been really bad at is art. We just don't pay much attention to it. And when we fail as a human society to patronize art, all that ends up happening is the monetizing of art. And that's not really healthy for its divine beauty. When the only art worth doing is the art you can sell. No one's willing to put up some money to begin with or to put up some time to begin with or to try to help art exist for its own sake. All of the great religious art from the Middle Ages into the Renaissance was paid for by rich people, essentially. Almost all of it. Because people said, neat. once you have a certain amount of money, what is the rest of that money for? And the answer is beauty. That's what it's for. It's actually not for food that will kill you. It's not for pornography. It's not for like a faster car. Really what that is, is for beauty, and preferably beauty in public places where everybody can be inspired by it. I mean, think about it. The streets of heaven are paved with gold, right? Do you think that that's just a reference to heaven being wealthy? Do you want to be bored for eternity? That's not the reason. The idea is heaven is so artistically vibrant. Why, why is gold expensive? Because it's beautiful. And then it becomes a status symbol, sadly. And so when God puts it on the street, he's like, it's beautiful, it's not a status symbol, and this place is going to be gorgeous. Because he cares about those two things and what they do to us and what they will do to us forever. And in all those things, 
you read chapters 1 and 2 of Luke, the Holy Spirit shows up. Jesus shows up. And we, both divinely and humanely, learn to be his. All right, Lord. Here we are. Please help us to take good things from this. Thank you for giving us what you've given us. Thank you for um, making us capable of seeing beauty. Even what other animals do out of instinct, even what creatures crawl upon and they don't see beauty, that we, in our minds, we see beauty there. And we pray that you'd help us to be people who are ennobled by it, drawn to you, people who come together deeply and who recognize the ideal that we seek in you together in Christ. We pray that through it you'd change us and make us faithful waiters, both persevering and fruitful. In Jesus' name.